attitudes. And we've learned that all of those steps are helpful and important and necessary. But they don't do enough toward removing these that we've built between us. That we've built between us. So... uh, I want to end up today with the idea that removing these walls that separate us is really important. We can't be content to be stopped after doing forgiveness. I mean, I've forgiven you, you've forgiven me, and we're fine. We can see each other, we can talk, and we can communicate. But as far as doing anything together, that's not something I want to do. And that's a difficult position for us to stay in, especially as a church family especially as a church family. So I'm going to be head, heading in that direction, and I'm going, to, I'm going to ask us to consider three things that impede the action of taking down the, the wall. So let's get started. I, I'm old enough to remember when McDonald's came to our town. Well, it didn't actually come to my town. It came to a town near enough to me that we could go there. And, and the, it was cheap food. It was pretty much made fresh. Uh, made to order and had a limited menu and because it was a limited menu sometimes when they were really busy they would make a bunch of the hamburgers ahead of time put them under the lights so that it would stay warm but it was still pretty fresh because nothing stayed on the shelf very long Uh, there was no problem deciding what you wanted there were only a few things to choose from do do any of you remember uh, Little House on the Prairie the TV show yeah I love asking a question about the past TV things and seeing how many hands go up. There were more this time than some other times that I've asked. But I want to tell you, it, I'm not, a, I'm not a, a little house aficionado here, but I did some homework on this one episode that I could remember. And it's in season eight. It's episode 10. And it's called um, The Wave of the Future. And what happens in this episode is Nellie who is the obnoxious daughter of Nels and Harriet, the, who own the store in town, has opened a restaurant. Somehow she's softened up. I don't know exactly. don't remember how that happened. But Nellie is not her obnoxious self anyway. And Harriet decides we're going to reopen Nellie's restaurant, but we're going to open it as a franchise restaurant <laughs> because it'll be more efficient. And we'll have this limited menu. Well, when they do this, they do... I mean, it was just so like McDonald's. It was unbelievable. I remember watching this thing and laughing out loud. They took away the comfortable seats. McDonald's doesn't have comfortable seats, do they? There's a reason for that, you know. Because they don't want you staying there long. They want you to get out of the seat so other people can come. And they put in these real hard seats and stuff like that. They're limited menu. And everybody was initially very enamored. And they came to the place and they ate. And then after a while, the crowd started dropping and dropping and dropping until finally there was only one person coming. And he always came and sat in the same seat and ordered the same thing. Or ordered the same thing. How many of you have eaten out in the last two weeks? Eaten out in the last two weeks. Now there's a question where almost every hand went up. Do you ever ever have any trouble deciding what to order? Yeah. I'm like that in restaurants. 
I have a hard time deciding what to order. And when you give me a 16-page menu, I am sunk. I'm sunk. I'm a wreck. I, I will end up doing what I have been chastised for doing, but I continue to do it because somebody there knows that menu better than me, and that's my server. So I'll say, well, what do you recommend? You know, and then they stop and think. And sometimes I buy what they recommend, sometimes I don't. And if you go to fast food places, it's not that much better. I mean, drive through McDonald's, if they had a drive through when it was open, there'd just be a little window like this. Hamburger, cheeseburger, fries, drink. That was it. Now... The thing is like this long and there's columns all over the place and you're sitting there in the drive-thru. Can I help you? Can I take your order? Just give me a minute, will you? You really should be saying, just give me about five minutes, will you? But the idea is for efficiency and speed. and Anyway, you end up with uncertainty. End up with uncertainty. Kristen, our daughter, has a phrase that I'd never heard before. I heard just last month when we were visiting. She refers to it as order envy. Order envy is when you're at the restaurant table and you ordered and then someone after you orders and what they order sounds better to you than what you ordered. (laughs) Order envy. Order envy. And then when the food comes, order envy becomes orderer's remorse. (laughs) Because you realize that you really should have done, (laughs) you really should have changed it. And her thing was, I never order what's on the menu. I said, what? She says, no, I I always kind of order what's on the menu. But then I ask, can you leave out this? Or can you add, can I get this instead? So she like customizes the order. She customizes the order. Make a decision. That sounds easy, doesn't it? But the uncertainty really gets in the way. How about this? You and two other drivers arrive at the four-way stop at the same time. Who's going to go first? I've given up going first. Unless I'm in a hurry, I get to the stop sign, I go like this. Or I'm waving in whatever direction it is. Because I don't want to make the decision to go first. I'd rather let someone else go first. Or how about this? You're watching a Western do you know what those are? Okay. I, I, they were, there were a lot of Westerns on TV when I was younger. And I, I watched all that stuff and enjoyed the stories and stuff like that. And I remembered the swinging doors on the saloon and wondered why was the saloon the only place that had a door you couldn't like close and lock. You know, and, and the raised up sidewalks and things. But there was always one thing that got my attention and held it. And that was when somebody walked out onto Main Street like this. Because there was someone down there in that same posture. And you were waiting to see who was going to shoot, who was going to go first. Who was going to get their gun out of the holster first. Who would draw for it? Uncertainty. Man, it was everywhere. And it still is. There's uncertainty in life. And when we're trying to decide something, we often experience 
that sense, don't we? We often experience that sense of uncertainty. And it can be paralyzing. It can be paralyzing. Uh, uncertainty is, is unsettling. It, it's, down, it's a feeling you have when you look in the rearview mirror and you see a police car behind you. No lights, just a police car. And you start wondering, am I going too fast? Am I driving recklessly? Uh, am I doing something wrong? Uncertainty means a lack of confidence in the outcome of our decision. It's a lack of confidence in the outcome of our decision. It causes a... It is a big factor in stopping us from taking the necessary steps to finish the work that God wants done. It causes us anxiety as we delay our response to try to figure out if there's a better way to proceed. I mean, that's what she did, right? Well, let's just wait a week and I'll pray on it, pray about it. I thought that was pretty clever. It's something that I think that I have said more times than I would like to admit. Well, I'll just pray about that instead of doing something. Well, let me think. I want to make sure that I'm that I get God's green light on this and we don't do anything because uncertainty is paralyzing us. One of the areas where this paralyzing fact of uncertainty really comes in is taking these down. All walls, all of these get built by a wrong or a perception of a wrong. Would you agree with that? If I don't do anything to hurt you, or you don't think I did anything to hurt you, there's probably not a wall between us. We're probably good. But when I do something to hurt you, or you perceive that I meant it to hurt you, it's pretty easy to build one of these, and we can build them fast. We can build them up fast. So I want to back up and, and see, take a look at, at how we mess up in life. There is uncertainty in life, says the slide. Now it's blank. There is uncertainty in life, says the slide. Okay, we'll leave that up there. So let's start with the whole idea of wrongness. In the church, what do we call that? A short, not very pleasant word, sin, sin. Anybody really want to go on being a sinner? Oh my goodness, there's no hands up. None of us want to, but we, we do, we do, because that's what we've done all our life. Now, the Greek word for sin is hamartia. I didn't realize that was going to be quite that small. And it means five different things. So just take a look at this so we can understand it better. The first one is to be to be without a share in. So it's like you don't have a stake in it. You don't have a share in it. So you're separated from it. Or to miss the mark. That's easier to understand, right? Someone puts up a target. 
You shoot at the bullseye, but the arrow goes this way and the bullseye's that way. You miss the mark. You're off the beaten path. The third one is to err or to be mistaken, to be, to be wrong about something. The fourth one is to miss or wander from the path of uprightness and honor, to do or go wrong. And the last definition is to wander from the law of God or violate God's law. So, so sin is missing the mark. We miss the mark in relationships when we don't take care of them. There, there are two general ways that we sin against God. One is doing or saying something that we shouldn't, and the other one is failing to do or say something that we shouldn't. That's a sin of commission or a sin of omission. And God, because He's all-powerful, He could stop us from doing those things, couldn't He? We're right, do, ready to do something that's wrong. God could put up His hand and say, Stop. But He doesn't do that. God could just simply make us do the right thing, couldn't he? But he doesn't do that either. The reason he doesn't make us do those things is because he gave us free will. And if he made us do those things, that would violate that free will. But there's one thing that we know for sure. We're not robots. We can't be programmed that way. And there's one thing we do know for sure. Anytime that God wants something to happen and it doesn't happen, it's not His fault. If He wants something to happen and we don't do it, whose fault is it? It's our fault. We didn't do it. Now, we like to think that God came, Jesus came, to, to get rid of the bad in the world. How's he doing on that? What do you think? Is the bad all gone yet? I mean, goodness, he's had 2,000 years, right? But he didn't really come to get rid of the bad in the world. He didn't even come to make bad people good, says Robbie Zacharias. Read this. Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And that is a very important distinction. A very important distinction. We live in a society, we live in a time where people have the idea that when someone is born, they are inherently good. They're inherently good. And that they learn to be selfish. They learn to be demanding. They learn to be self-centered. They learn to be arrogant. They learn to be mean. They learn to be liars. They learn to be stealers. They, not in the Pittsburgh stealer sense. They learn to be whatever it is. You know what I'm saying? That's not true. We're not born good. We're a mess when we're born. And we are given to those things because that's our natural proclivity. Because of sin. And because of that sin, we are, quote-unquote, dead. And Jesus came 
to make us alive. To make us alive. God is in the business of making dead people alive. He's in the business of, of that for one reason. And that reason is to restore relationship between us and Him and between us and each other. God is interested and specializing in the business of reconciliation. Jesus accepted our sin. He died for it to allow us to live with, in relationship with the Father. He made us new. We have proof of that right here. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Have you heard that before? Do we really get a grip on that sometimes? Here's what C.S. Lewis said about it. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. And, he doesn't, and it does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here and putting on an extra floor there and running up towers and making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. And he intends to come and live in it himself. That's what it means to be new. That means that our thoughts are thrown out. Our desires are changed. Something happens to us that gives us a chance to do over the rest of our life. His desire is that all who receive the, the gift of new life, this new house as it were, should love him and each other. Now here, there are ten verses that I want to point us to this morning that remind us of the importance of loving each other. So I'm going to put them up and I want us all to read them together. Okay? After being a teacher for a long time, I know that some people listen by hearing or learn by hearing. Some people learn by writing. Some people learn by doing. So if we read these things together, we're going to hear them and see them, and it will help us to, to put them in here a little more easily. Here's the first one. Let's read together. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Romans 12.10 Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Romans 13.8 let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. 2 Corinthians 13, 11. 
Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. 2 Thessalonians 1, 3. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love of have for one another is increasing. I blinked and lost my place. 1 Peter 1.22 Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. 1 Peter 3.8 Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. 1 John 3.11 For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. And finally, 1 John 3.23 And this is His command to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as He has commanded us. I never realized how much more powerful God's Word was when I said it out loud. I never realized how much more impact learning took place for me than when I read something out loud. And I hope you feel that reading those scriptures this morning was was worthwhile. We have new life, right? We have new life. We're to love one another. And there is no uncertainty in that. That's not a... We get to pick and choose. There's no uncertainty. He didn't say, love most everybody. Or he didn't say, try on occasion to love one another. There's no time frame involved in that. It's a simple command. Do it. Love each other. Now that's going to look different, right? It's going to look different where our relationships are. But when we act on that, when we act on that, we take a step toward getting rid of this. His desire is also that we become restored in relationship to Him and to each other. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19 says this, All this is from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry, the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Now, do you think that that means that we have a responsibility to tell people that they need to be connected to God. That we need to find a way to invite them into a relationship with Him because He really wants a relationship with Him. Do we have a responsibility for that? Yes. The ministry of reconciliation is ours. 
that mantle lies squarely on our shoulders. And how we do that is first and foremost by loving one another. By loving one another. By this will all men know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. Love one another. 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. What kind of restoration are we trying to get? Full restoration. See, God does not want me on this side of the wall and you on that side of the wall and the wall to still be here. That's not full restoration. It's not full restoration. It means that we're still separated by something. There's some little thing here nagging in. And if this was a plant and it was grown up, we could have cut it down like a hedge and gotten it pretty low to the ground. But what, 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 was the, what have we been learning? Is that enough? No. We've got to take the roots out so it doesn't grow back up. Because if we're not careful, it's pretty easy to put another layer of bricks on that thing. It's pretty easy to add to it. And one of the easiest ways for that to happen is that we just can ignore the person on the other side. We've done the forgiveness thing, but you know, I don't really have to deal with them. And that's fine if they live 500 miles away from you. But we're doing life together here. Right? Isn't that what we're supposed to be about? We're doing life together. And you can't do life together when that's in between you. You just can't. The enmity that the enemy seeks to foster and intensify among us is put away in exchange for love and the process of reconciliation. By being obedient to God, we can take the first step toward reconciliation. And, and it comes down to one question. Do we trust it? Do we trust the process? Are we sure enough to take the first step to make the first move? It started with forgiveness, right? Getting rid of the wall starts with forgiveness. Here's what C.S. Lewis says about that. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Oh, well, what I did wasn't as bad as what they did. Oh, really? In God's eyes? Sin is sin. Obviously, some sins carry much heavier and weightier consequences than others. But if you miss the mark, you step off the path, you're sinning. You're sinning. Trusting the process means believing in the outcome and the benefits of it. You can't believe in the outcome unless you can believe in the one who's behind all of it. There are two other reasons besides uncertainty I want us to consider this morning that stop 
us short of the full reconciliation that God desires. One is misplaced trust. Uncertainty, because we're not sure what, what's happening. And the other one is misplaced trust. Now, I think oftentimes we do not trust the person we need to reconcile with. Have you ever felt that way? You got, it's you and somebody else, you're on opposite ends of things, and, and you'd like that to be put away, but you don't believe that they really want it. Or you don't believe that they're really serious about doing it. Or you don't believe them for whatever. That's misplaced trust because you're trusting in them. When we look over the wall that's been built between us and we see the other person, we can extend their forgiveness. We can give forgiveness over that wall. We've done what God has said and that's enough for us. Not going any farther. We're reluctant to take the wall down because we don't really want to expose ourselves to being hurt again. How many of you look forward to being hurt again? Right? Nobody. Nobody wants to be hurt again. How many look forward to going to the dentist again? Right? I read somewhere some time ago that that was the highest stress job you could have because nobody wanted to come in, come to you unless the pain they were experiencing was worse than the pain they knew you were going to put them through to get rid of the pain they were experiencing. Otherwise, it's not a pleasant experience. I mean, I don't look forward to going to the dentist. You're sitting in a chair there. You got your mouth open. He's trying to talk to you. You can't talk to him back because he's in there with stuff. And before he even gets there, the, the hygienist is in there with these needles and wires and and stuff scraping away at your teeth and it's not fun no one wants to get hurt again no one wants to get hurt again keep the wall up that's a good way to keep from getting hurt again we're okay with that but God commands us to be reconciled and as long as the wall's up we're not reconciled As long as we depend on the person instead of depending upon Christ in that person, we will be trapped in uncertainty about reconciling the relationship. As long as we depend on the person instead of depending on Christ in that person, will be trapped in uncertainty about reconciling that relationship. And as we know, uncertainty is that place where I don't know which way to go, so I end up staying right there and not going anywhere. Don't trust the other person. Trust Christ in them. Trust Christ in them. Sharon and I have been married a long time, and we have had a great marriage. I mean, it's really better now than it's ever been. And some of you that are just embarking on that might find that hard to believe, but work hard at it and you will find that that what I'm saying is true. It's better now than than it was when we were first married. And in the middle, we've had some highs and we've had some lows. And when we were coming out of those lows, when we were coming out of that deep water, 
we both learned it wasn't about trusting the other person. It was about trusting Christ in the other person. See, because if Jesus is there pushing out the new wing and putting up towers and building courtyards and stuff like that, then he's in there waiting to do that stuff. And we have to trust that, that he's serious about it. Because if we're depending on the other person, guess what's going to happen? You're going to get let down. Because they're a person. They're not Jesus. They're not God. They're them. And depending on what stage of life they're in, they're either a mess or a hot mess. Trust Christ in them. Trust Christ in them. Don't keep your distance. Become involved. We'll go our own way, live our own life. Ah, that's not obedience. But that's what we have sometimes. Because it's easy. It's easy to leave that up. I can get along just fine with that. And that quasi-obedience, our church family will not be as vibrant or as effective as we proclaim His offer of freedom, healing, and life. That's what we say we believe. Depending on, on someone else in those situations is like climbing into a hammock that has frayed ropes. We're not sure it's going to hold us. We look at the ropes and we say, uh-uh, I'm not getting into that thing. Have you seen or experienced being in a hammock that had ropes that didn't hold you? Happened to me just this year. <laughs> Happened to me just this year. I was lying in this hammock at, at my uh, college roommate's home in Belize. And pop! The rope just broke. And I went <laughs> right down. The good news was that it was on one of those little frames. So the distance I fell was only about this much before I landed on the deck. But imagine... If I'd have known that thing was going to break, I wouldn't have crawled into it. I crawl into a hammock because I want it to hold me up. I want to have confidence in it. I don't want to get in there for a thrill ride. As long as we depend on the person instead of depending on Christ in that person, will be trapped in uncertainty about re reconciling that relationship. Oh, this is also very small. I'll have to look this way. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Didn't that apply to the girl in the video? She was listening to it, but she was not doing what it said. Anyone who listens but doesn't do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. What kind of person do you want to be there? Who wants blessing? Who wants God's blessing in their life? I want it. Why wouldn't I? 
Do you remember the movie Arthur? Yeah, it's an old movie. <laughs> but Arthur's this really rich guy, and I mean, he has everything he could want, everything money could buy, and all that kind of thing. And in the course of the movie, he falls in love with this uh, girl who's played by Liza Minnelli. And his grandmother, who is the purse strings to all of the money, has said to him, if he doesn't marry, if he marries below his station, he's not going to, he's going to get cut off from all the money. And he decides he wants to marry this girl anyway. Well, then she relents and, and he says to her, you know, my grandmother told me I could have the money. And she says, well, what'd you do? He says, I took the money. I'm not stupid. Who wants God's blessing? I want it. I want it. And if God's blessing is contingent on me being obedient, then by golly, I want to be obedient. I want to be obedient. Misplaced trust and uncertainty keep us from reconciliation. The last thing is pride. Losing your pride is like falling down. No one wants to do that. How many of you have uh, walked on a slippery surface and fallen? How many of you, when you have fallen, have scrambled up just as quickly as you could before someone could see you? (laughs) Right? There's something about falling down that humbles us. I mean, it's just the, the way it is. No one wants to do that if they think that there's a good chance of injury or or further injury. But we've got to see that surrendering our pride is the only way we can put our weight completely in one place, in any place. We struggle with the whole forgiveness thing. We don't find it easy to admit that we were wrong or to ask for forgiveness. We find it sometimes, when someone's wronged us, somehow comforting to withhold that forgiveness. I'm not going to forgive them. They don't deserve it. We're thinking that we're keeping them trapped. We're making them pay. But guess what? Who's getting trapped? We are. Because we're carrying that around with us. Pride insulates us from seeing an accurate, accurate picture of ourselves. It elevates the who we are Above the whose we are. It elevates the who we are above the whose we are. When that happens, we're the most important person in the picture. And nowhere, nowhere in Scripture are we told that we should be the most important. Nowhere. That whole idea of take care of number one, Look out for number one. You won't find that in the pages of the Bible. In fact, we read just the opposite. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. But rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Be this, we read this already. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Above yourselves. 
Pride will keep us from taking down the wall and extending a hand to the one on the other side. We cannot afford to be condescending in that. Nor can we afford to be content. We can't afford to stay here and say, I'm good. I don't need to take anything else out. I'm good. I'm doing just fine. Life's good. Wasn't that her response? When she met the person she should have forgiven? How are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. Everything's good. Are you all right? She had asked her. She said, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Lewis was a wise man. He was a wise man. We cannot wait for the Holy Spirit to move the other person toward us. Didn't she say that too? Why, why, don't I, why don't I just wait for you to get her to come to me and ask for forgiveness, right? She said that. We can't wait for the Holy Spirit to do that. We can't wait for them to reach across the wall first. If we see, if we see and understand that reconciliation has not happened and we recognize that it has not happened, the first move must come from us. Because God's showing us that it needs to happen. Maybe He's not showing them. Maybe they don't even know. If He shows us, we've got to do it. We see it. The Holy Spirit has shown us the picture. He's shown us the wall still exists. He's shown us for a reason. And because we've seen it, the responsibility to be obedient and act is ours. The first step toward reconciliation is one that only you can take. The first step toward reconciliation is one that only you can take. No one else can do that for you. Sit there and wait for the other person. You might be waiting a long time. Don't do it because you, they might not respond. That's mistrusting. Well, I'm waiting for them to come to me. That's pride. The first step is only is the one only you can take. So I have some questions for us. Are we content to be at that level? Knowing that full reconciliation invites God's empowerment and blessing in measures we have yet to experience. Are we content there? Is it not the desire of our hearts to hear Him say to us the words spoken in Matthew 25? Well done, good and faithful servant. Who doesn't want to hear those? Who doesn't want to hear the voice of God, the voice of Christ, the Holy Spirit whispering that to us? Well done. Do we not desire to live a life full with a more acute sense of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our everyday experience? 
Wouldn't you love to wake up and go through the day and know, consciously know, that everything that you're seeing, everything that you're saying, everything that you're doing, every interaction, that God is present and and working in every one of those things. We, of course, don't live like that, but wouldn't, wouldn't it be great to? Wouldn't we want to do that? Do we desire to work together? Do we desire to work together? Shoulder to shoulder for the kingdom with each other without walls separating us? Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that increase our effectiveness just because we'd be more powerful? We're not dragging blocks around. We're not worrying about the other person because we're trusting Christ in them and we're set on the same course and we're set for the same mission and we're doing the same work. Let those desires be what pushes us into action. Let's not be dissuaded by uncertainty or misplaced trust or pride. Would you step into those desires to experience that? Would you step into those desires to experience that? Would you take the first step in removing the blocks and setting them aside? Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Does that describe us? Does that describe any of us? Would you step into those desires to experience what God wants, not just for you, but on a larger scale, for this church, for this city? Would you do that? You know, Pastor Tim, when when he began this series, um, asked a question about reconciliation and forgiveness. And and he had people respond. How many, how many of you feel like this is something you need to do? And I wasn't him because he was up here and I was sitting down there somewhere and we were all had, had our heads bowed and, and were in an attitude of prayer at that time. And But he said the number of hands that went up in this room was astonishing. From wall to wall, there were people that said, yep, I need to do that. Yeah, I need to reconcile. I need to forgive. Make the first move. Make it. Take the first step. Trust the one who wants that reconciliation more deeply than you might. 
And then watch what he does. Watch what he does. Might be a frightening first step. But if your heart's in the right place, your attitude's in the right place, and you really want that outcome, don't think for a minute that Christ is not going to do what he can, which is anything, to make it happen. Because of the benefit you will receive and the benefit we will receive. I'm going to invite the worship team to come and let's just pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, you set before us choices in life. Sometimes the number of choices and the number of options is, is paralyzing because there's so many. But you're very clear about these things. You're very clear about the need for us to love each other. You're very clear about the need of, for us to trust you. And you're very clear about the need for us to not think of ourselves as better than someone else. Help us to set away the uncertainty. Help us to set away the mistrust. To set, away the, to set aside the, the pride that keeps us from taking this step towards someone else. Speak to our hearts this week. Give us the courage to pick up the phone and make a call or to invite someone to meet for coffee or to do something that will help us to begin to remove the walls that have been built between us. Let us be the ones who make the first move so that your Holy Spirit might work in that situation to bring healing and freedom and life. That we might stand as a church family together, shoulder to shoulder, working hard, pursuing your kingdom, building it against the darkness that's out there. Do not let us rest until that happens. Do not let us rest. We ask it in the name of Jesus.